0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is
1: Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Agencies will work on three milestones to bring employees back to the office, according to guidance from the Office of Management and Budget. An OMB official tells GovExec updating agency safety plans, working with unions, and giving notice to employees are the milestones agencies have ahead. Agencies back-to-office plans were due to OMB on Monday. The Air Force is building a cloud ecosystem for its maintenance operations. The Rapid Sustainment Office has awarded a contract to Google for what the service calls Project Lighthouse. FedScoop reports neither the service nor the company released the value of the award. A veteran of the National Institute of Standards and Technology will become its new leader if the Senate confirms her. Lori Lacasio worked at NIST for almost 30 years. Her last job was acting principal deputy director. NextGov reports she's vice president for research at University of Maryland College Park and University of Maryland, Baltimore now. (music) The Department of Veterans Affairs will spend more money than Congress gives it this year on information technology. VA can spend money this year. It's been stashing for IT for the last five years. Jim Jifferer is principal at Fidelis He's former chief information officer at VA. Jim, thanks for coming back on the program. It's great to see you. So Aaron Boyd and NextGov piqued my interest with this headline. VA is asking Congress for fewer IT dollars in 2022, but plans to spend more than 2021. How do you pull something like that off, Jim?
2: Sure. Well, Francis, great to be with you. And certainly as the article covered, that was via the Transfer, transformation fund, which are essentially zero-year dollars that can be applied across uh, a host of activities. Um, I think the challenge that the Tech Modernization Committee, uh, Chairman Mervin and, and Ranking Member Rosendale hit upon, though, is why are we not building that into the base budget, right? Why are we using kind of episodic you know, uh, funds that are available only on a periodic basis? Um, and so that's that's how that's working. I would also stress that even if it gets to that top number of 5.4 percent, a 5.4 billion or thereabouts. Um, it's still only at 4.6 percent of the overall department discretionary spend for 22, which is 120 billion. You have the challenge again, where 5 billion sounds like a lot of money until you look at the denominator and you say it can't keep up with the growth of the lines of business within VA.
1: Yeah, that's the 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 context that I think is important. It, it sounds like a ton of money until you match it to the top to the to the big number. What kind of impact then if it's not a huge number, relatively speaking? What kind of impact can it have for the team that's in there now Jim?
2: Well certainly every dollar that uh, comes available is you know has a home. Uh, there's a lot of uh, deferred maintenance, a lot of deferred procurement right what we refer to as technical debt. Uh, right? The department has grown about 125,000 people in the past 10 years. Each one of those are voracious consumers of information technology and services. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, we have not kept up uh, the VA OIT budget has not kept up. The staffing alone uh, within the 8,000 plus workforce in OIT our studies, when I was there, showed that we were at least 4,000 people short. You know, so just from a workforce perspective, you know, we think about the people that deliver and provision devices and make sure services are provided. Uh, they have not kept up, even though there were great scores.
1: There are a number of places where that money will go. As you said, every dollar has a name. Um, the uh, IT infrastructure improvements for medical centers to accommodate the new uh, EHR system and and other systems there's the financial management business transformation program that we've discussed on this program before modernizing the HR systems there's just a lot of places for this money to go How does one go about not speaking necessarily to what's happening at VA today, because I know you're not there anymore, but how does one go about prioritizing where this money that maybe wasn't expected should go when there's so many things out there that could really use it, Jim?
2: Yeah, well, and you hit on a key point. Even while I was there, and certainly it continues, the amount of major modernization programs you enumerated, several of them, uh, really are adding to the complexity and the challenges of the modernization. I would stress, though, I know it came up in the Sec. VA hearing last week about uh, the role of the CIO on this. You know, really, each one of those, especially HR Smart, FMBT, they have business owners, right? Uh, the CFO is the business owner for financial management business transformation, uh, the human capital officer, chief human capital officer for HR Smart. So it's really imperative that the business owner, and OIT as the system owner, stay aligned. They have common uh, interest and, 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 and line of sight around goals within any year of execution and that the funding's there to make sure that it's, uh, each of these deployments are progressing.
1: In a program like that one or in a program like the EHR program or some other big thing that doesn't even necessarily live in uh, VAHQ, that might live in VHA or might live in VBA, What do you advise people to do to stay aligned, to keep the business owner aligned with OIT? And again, not necessarily just at VA. All across government, agencies are struggling with this exact issue.
2: Sure, and and certainly this came up last week in the in the EHR hearings, right? And it was spot on. It was on the governance perspective, right? If you don't have strong governance, if you allow one office, even the office of primary responsibility, uh, you know, to become uh, you know kind of an army of one and, and lead the way, and not have that collection of other supporting entities, OIT, HR, you know, all, all the cast of players, that's probably the biggest challenge. And then making sure that the true costs, the uh, uh, you know, the life cycle costs are identified and that those are aligned across the respective budget lines. Because I know in the case of VA OIT, where it has a centralized appropriation, you mentioned it with MilCon, there's a lot of work to be done to align that when a medical center is approved, uh, that it doesn't just kind of happen in that out year, that VA has enough money to provision that medical center, which is obviously very costly.
1: Uh, we have less than a minute left, Jim. Is the measure for success in spending money out of this transformational fund different than spending the money that's in the base budget every year, or is it is is money money?
2: Yeah, m- money is money. Uh, again, I, I think that the real question and the challenge is, are you building sufficient money uh, in, into the budget, and I would say that applies to every agency, acri- applies across the federal government. You know, again, uh, the federal government IT spend for 22 is going to be somewhere around $100 billion. That sounds like a lot again, but you, until you realize that the federal government has a discretionary budget of about $1.5 that's an average of only 6%. Uh, as the Office of Federal CIO says, if you are only at about 5%, you are barely maintaining much less modernizing and innovating which really are the demands of it today
1: jim Gifford, thanks very much as always terrific to have you back on the show
2: thank you francis
1: coming next the surprise allies in the pentagon supply chain fight straight ahead on government matters building supply chain resilience with a little help from our friends you're watching wjla 24 7 news Welcome back. The leaders of the House Armed Services Committee's critical supply chain task force are examining what the Defense Department needs that it's having trouble getting. Allies and partners can lower supply chain risks, according to Jerry McGinn, executive director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. He's former principal deputy director for manufacturing and industrial base at the Pentagon, and he's writing about resiliency in the defense industrial base in the Hill newspaper. Jerry, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. I appreciate the Beatles reference, your piece titled Building Industrial Resilience with a little help from our friends. Who are the friends in particular that can help keep the supply chain resilient for the department?
3: Well, thanks Francis, it's great to be back. Yeah, the, it's all about our really close allies and partners. These are the ones that we go to war with, that we have trusted strong relationships with. These are our NATO partners and our Five Eyes partners and countries like Japan, Uh, United Kingdom, Australia, uh, Canada and you know those are our trusted partners and you know we already work very closely with them so let's you know and they have competitive advantages in a number of areas. So let's work together to address um, industrial resilience.
1: You write uh, that we start, you write, with a very strong baseline, and then you describe what that baseline is, the business and the relationships that we already leverage with those partners. You write, the first step build off the White House report on supply chain resilience would be to clarify White House and Defense Department guidance on the important benefits of those contributions. What would you like to see that Guidance include.
3: I'd like to see the White House kind of reaffirm the importance of allies and partners uh, in our that th- the role they play in helping our industrial base uh, because they also the White House has a focus on Buy America and that, those um, th- that creates some cognitive dissonance for our allies and partners at, at some point it's in some ways so I think you know it, th- there's very clear guidance in the the DoD 5000 series about how partners and allies can contribute. Uh, and we just need to make that, um, reinforce that up and down the acquisition chain so that you have things such as partners can, uh, are not, so when they're doing requirements for a program, they're not using classified information that allies can't see or, because we're talking about companies that are based in the United States, you know, subsidiaries of foreign parents, that, that uh, you know, build ships, build um, electronic systems, and then also help industrial based activities. So uh, there's um, some real practical ways that the, the administration can do. Um, to address this uh, initially
1: how would that juxtapose with a by American policy a by American idea and is there political appetite to create maybe a by America and allies type of policy does that does that even uh, is is that even a possibility
3: I think it is I think that's the win-win approach um, because the White House report said it best I mean they, they said uh, in the, this is the 100-day report for the uh, review by the current administration that said the United States cannot address its supply chain vulnerabilities alone. And that's where the allies come in. You know, I think you, you, you can't build everything here. There's a reason why a lot of these manufacturing capabilities move out. Um, and countries like the, uh, the the Australia and Canada have competitive advantages in mining, Japan and rare earth um, magnets. Uh, the UK is very strong in robotics and, and other areas, so yeah, so I think you know there are ways that we can we we, we want we have to build critical manufacturing capabilities here, uh, and we have to get out most importantly out of uh, doing vulnerabilities with respect to China, uh, and we can do that where we can domestically, but sometimes with a little help from our friends. You know, maybe it makes more sense to involve um, allied partners on specific activities, and that's where I think. It's a, um, you know, you don't buy America only, um, you have to, you know, build a mask but I think there's a real win-win solution. And I think the HAVS task force that you referenced is exactly coming out with that approach. their reports out, due out in the next couple of days, and they've talked about a buy allied approach. So I think, um, I think there's a good potential to, um, to square the circle, so to speak, between um, uh, partnerships and by America.
1: You've got one more step here, and we're starting to run out of time. The next step is strengthening the existing industrial-based programs and initiatives to increase allied and partner participation. Sounds like you're already headed down that road in the vision that you just laid out a moment ago, Jerry.
3: That's correct. I mean, you already have a really strong um, policy frameworks or, or actual programs that we can build off of. The National Technology Industrial Base was created in 2017, NDAA, that sets the framework for the United States, Canada, Australia, and United Kingdom being one industrial base. However, that's done good work on um, uh, foreign direct investments, but there's no real practical aspects. Let's make NTIB clauses in opportunities in Department of Defense. So you create real concrete opportunities that companies can go after. Uh, Likewise with Defense Production Act Title III, Believe it or not, under the law, U.S. and Canada are consum- considered domestic sources. Let's expand that definition to include the United Kingdom and Australia. So then you've got the best of um, our allied and partners and domestic capabilities addressing United States industrial base weaknesses. So it's a win-win. Um, and then you know there's another program, the Industrial Base Analysis and Sustainment Program, very small budget, core budget. Let's raise that to at least 50 million. So I think there are a number of ways we can, we already got the frameworks in place. Let's let's really kind of give some real concrete opportunities that companies can can seize on and we can work together with our close partners and allies.
1: Jerry McGinn, thanks very much as always. Great to talk to you again. Really great seeing you Francis. You can find a link to Jerry's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, the top two questions the Navy has to answer to fix its fighting culture. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the job ahead for the new Secretary of the Navy. We archive every show of Government Matters at govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. Welcome back. The nominee for Navy Secretary, Carlos del Toro, faces two big questions if the Senate confirms him. A surface Navy investigation 11 years ago and the investigation after two collisions in 2017 asked the same questions House and Senate Armed Services Committee members are asking today. Harlan Ullman's chair at the Killowan Group and senior advisor at the Atlantic Council writing about the Navy's fleet strategy in the Hill. His forthcoming book is titled, The Fifth Horseman and the New M.A.D., How Massive Attacks of Disruption Became the Looming Existential Danger to a Divided Nation and the World at Large. Harlan, I told you before we went on the air, I love your work because of the historical references and analogies that you draw. In this piece, you reference Royal Navy Vice Admiral Sir David Beatty at the Battle of Jutland in 1916. There seems to be something wrong with our bloody ships today. How does that compare to what you're seeing in the Navy today, Harlan? Welcome.
4: Uh, Francis, it's always good to be with you. I think this applies far more than just to the surface Navy. I'm very concerned about the U.S. military because, quite frankly, the last naval war the U.S. Navy fought was Okinawa in 1945. Now, it's true, some of the Navy, the Air Force part of the Navy, particularly in Korea, Vietnam, and elsewhere. But we have not been at war against a major peer power. And quite frankly, the wars we have been against were asymmetrical. The Vietnamese did not have a particularly strong military, uh, nor did the Mujahideen in Afghanistan or in Iraq. And yet we did not do very well there. So what happens when we face a peer competitor? That's a real issue regarding the Navy. None of this is new. We know that the surface Navy has always been the stepchild of the, of the larger Navy, but what have we done about it? And this report is troubling for several reasons. First, despite it being bipartisan in quotation marks, no Democrat has signed up for it. And it was released the same day that the candidate for secretary of the Navy was being had this hearing on the Hill. And so one can question that, but more importantly, we have known about this as you pointed out for at least 11 years. And certainly since I entered the Navy, when I think we were shifting from sail to steam that we've had problems in the surface force. So why have they not been repaired and who's accountable for all this? I also believe that this requires a deeper look in the US military to see how prepared we are for a major conflict if it should occur against a peer competitor such as China or even Russia. I think this is very, very important. Whether we will do that or not remains to be seen. If I had to make a guess, Francis, this report will be buried as being partisan, and the Navy will go on doing its business without much change.
1: The report that you're referencing, Harlan, is titled The Fighting Culture of the United States Surface Navy. Tom Cotton, Senator from Arkansas, and Congressman Jim Banks, Dan Crenshaw, and Mike Gallagher, uh, sponsoring this work and releasing this report, as you said, at the same time that Carlos del Toro Was before the SASC. You framed the questions as I mentioned in the intro, uh, Harlan. That Mr. Del Toro will have to answer if uh, if the Senate confirms him this way, and we'll take them in turn. What has the Navy done to rectify these failings, and why have those efforts not succeeded? Is that? Do you mean that as a rhetorical question, or do you think that there are answers, knowable answers today, Harlan?
4: I know that there are knowable answers for about three years. I was an adjunct distinguished professor at the Naval War College at Newport from 2016 to 19. And I had a lot of discussions with relatively junior officers and these failings in maintenance and operation so forth, I think are persistent throughout the Navy. For example, in the submarine force, the time it takes for some submarines to be overhauled is just too, too long. And so I think that the Navy needs a top to bottom, bottom to top thorough examination and evaluation of its strengths and weaknesses. We just cannot tolerate these signs of lack of readiness and other shortfalls. And so I think it's incumbent upon the new secretary, assuming he will be confirmed and this hearing went very, very well, to start with an assessment of where is the Navy and where should the Navy be and how do we get there?
1: You alluded to the second question a moment ago, Harlan, but you write it this way. Do any of these cultural shortcomings apply to the rest of the Navy and the other services as well? And I assume there's a knowable answer to that one too.
4: I believe the answer is yes. You have the, the Marine Corps and the, and the Army moving towards a strategy for the Pacific, but who is overseeing that strategy? What is Congress doing? Who's challenging the assumptions? And so I think that we need to look at the other services because I assume that some of the problems that are plaguing, in this case, the surface force, are probably applicable to the other services, but we won't find out unless we look. Look, anybody who's smart wants to have a physical examination at least once a year. What I'm arguing right now is the Department of Defense needs a physical examination to ensure it's in top shape. If it is fine, if it's not, then we have to rectify whatever the shortcomings that may be find.
1: We have about a minute left, Harlan. I want to go back to that conversation with the junior officers at the War College. Was it their sense uh, that the challenges with maintenance, for example, are because of benign neglect or some type of nefarious activity that somebody just hasn't bothered to fix yet?
4: Well, I think it's some combination. I wouldn't say nefarious. Uh, And that also applies to operational readiness. Unfortunately, budgets are always a problem and you have to squeeze budgets. And if you squeeze budgets, something is gonna give way. I believe certainly throughout the Navy and the other forces, what we used to call an operational readiness inspection is mandatory for every single unit. And you've got to give the unit the resources to be able to do that. That to me is a top order of priority. And quite frankly, we may have to cut other programs to make sure that not only the fleet, but the U.S. military is ready for sustained operations incident to combat at land, sea or air as mandated in the National Security Act.
1: Harlan Ullman, terrific to talk to you as always. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you, Francis.
1: You can find a link to Harlan's piece and learn more about his book at govmatters.tv resources. And don't forget you get a preview and a recap of every show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. Go to govmatters.tv and enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. Welcome back. North America's largest maritime expo and conference is back in person. The Navy League Sea Airspace 2021 is August 2nd to 4th at Gaylord National Harbor. You'll see speakers from the Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, Maritime Administration, and Congress. You can learn more and sign up at govmatters.tv slash events.
0: Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's what I want to, here's where I want to
1: go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, If you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball?
0: Well, I think I think the idea here is to if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry that you're asking for the right kind of services if you're still stuck on an rfp or a format that asks for older technology there are and and there are unfortunately francis a number of rfps and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff and it's it's like the the to to some extent i'm 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 advocating for timeline be damned you ought to